0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a solo episode for you. This one is going to be a listener-generated question topic episode, but I am actually going to keep it to a single question for this episode. And I'm actually going to build it out quite a bit. So I've gotten some really good questions in after the last call I did. And some of them I think merit full episodes. And it may be something I consider doing going into 2023 versus kind of the more standard procedure I've had with these in the past where I'll usually do three, maybe even four questions. I may just do a little bit more of a deep dive, spend a little more time kind of researching the question and digging in Uh, a little further, especially on the ones that I think that the listeners are going to be more interested in than others. So today's topic actually has to do with exogenous ketones. A little bit of a precursor to this one. I'm not an expert or a research scientist on exogenous ketones. So these are things that I have done some research on, spoken to some experts in the field, and will likely be having some of the experts that are at the forefront of researching this stuff as well as some of the researchers that are like interested in it as well, coming on down the road to clear up what I talk about and add a lot more kind of science to it all. But for the purposes of this, I think there's some cool things we can dig into and at least get a primer out there on kind of the questions that have been coming in around those. And for those of you who are maybe new to it or interested in like, like what are these things? Why would anyone consider using them? Uh, Everything kind of in in that sort of a, a framework. So For this particular episode, actually, one of the resources I used quite a bit to kind of just check in on where some of the research is standing at the moment is examine.com. One of my former guests, actually, Brady Homer, who's actually also, also an Austin local now. So I'll be having Brady on the show down the road in person And, uh, he is now researching for examine examine has had a revamp over the last year. Uh, I believe they're calling it examine 2.0 now, actually. So what they're doing is they are just making an interface that is like super easy to look for and find the application of certain like nutrients, supplements, and things like that. So to give you a little bit of an idea, I went on examine.com. I typed in exogenous ketones and it produced A bunch of the topics that have been studied, how those studies were done, whether it's just an individual study versus a meta analysis, and just giving you kind of an overview of where the field sits today. And it made it quite a bit easier for me to kind of go through some of the basic stuff and uh, learn a lot myself. You know, there's a lot I don't know about exogenous ketones and where they're heading. And that is something that uh, I'm looking forward to also improving my knowledge base on through both researching for this podcast. And like I said, speaking with some experts down the road and then continually following, because this is definitely area of research that's in its infancy. There's a lot of long-term things that we don't know about exogenous ketones. There's a lot of short-term things we don't know about exogenous ketones. And I think at this point, one of the big questions a lot of people have is around the performance aspect of these type of supplements and where that is at or heading in the coming years. Before we get rolling, just a few quick announcements. If you are in Austin or visiting Austin on Sunday, come join my group run, Outliers ATX. We meet at 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. at Mets Park. Details for that for any given weekend can be found on Instagram at Outliers ATX. If you're interested in coaching, either pre-made plans or one-on-one coaching where I design the plan for you and collaborate with you along the way head over to zackbitter.com for information about the various options there. If you want to support the HPO podcast, you can do that a few different ways. One is by joining the show Patreon page, which will give you access to early release and ad free audio options of every episode. Another way to do that is to head over to zackbitter.com forward slash HPO. That is the landing page for this ep- for this podcast and you'll have links to the Patreon page as well as other support options and all the links and details to each episode that has been recorded so far. If you want to support the show non-monetarily, you can do that by liking, sharing, and subscribing on your favorite listening platform and letting your friends, family, and followers know about the episodes that you enjoy. Finally, show sponsors. If one of the show sponsors happens to have a product that you want to check out, letting them know you came to them through here goes a long ways. You can see all the show sponsors at ZachBitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors, as well as the specific episode sponsors in the show notes. This episode sponsors include BiOptimizers, Magnesium Breakthrough, and Bond Charge Sleep Masks. All right, let's talk a bit about magnesium. Magnesium is abundant in things like green leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and whole grains. Magnesium is also an antagonist of calcium in the body and is required for vitamin D synthesis and activation. As such, magnesium deficiency can inhibit the potential benefits of things like vitamin D supplementation. If your way of eating does not include many magnesium-rich foods, or you have these but still experience low levels of magnesium, you might want to consider Bioptimizers' magnesium breakthrough. Supplementing with magnesium can have its downsides. One of which can be a laxative effect, which could just exasperate the problem that you're trying to solve. Magnesium Breakthrough is my favorite magnesium product that I recommend, partly because of its full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually absorb. Magnesium Breakthrough has also updated their magnesium supplement to include cofactors like B6 and manganese to help with the absorption of the magnesium. This now comes along with their seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium. This can help with things like sleep improvement, stress reduction, and a sense of calm. If you need to add extra magnesium into your diet, simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what happens. Bioptimizers continues to offer their impressive 365-day money-back guarantee so you can test it out risk-free if interested let them know that hpo sent you by going to buyoptimizers.com forward slash human and don't forget to use the promo code human that's h-u-m-a-n for 10 percent off your next order bond charge is a holistic wellness brand with a range of products that help you navigate the modern environment in a better way they focus on things like circadian rhythm and optimal sleep routines I've been using two of their products this summer. These include their 100% blackout sleep masks and their blue light blocking glasses. Good sleep hygiene like a cool temperature environment, pitch black darkness, and a quiet environment can go a long way to help you stay asleep and maximize your nighttime rest. So personally, I like a consistent routine I can replicate whether I am at home or traveling. Being able to replicate my routine as close as possible makes it easier to consistently get a good night's sleep regardless of whether I am home or traveling. I use the Bond Charge Sleep Mask to make sure I have the same 100% blackout regardless if I am at home or traveling. The material on the Bond Charge Sleep Mask is comfortable, adjustable, and allows me to sleep on my back or sides without discomfort. The soft padded eye cups allow you to open your eyes while wearing the mask. I also spend a lot of time every day staring at computer screens, phones, and tablets while recording, editing podcasts, answering emails, and writing my coaching plans. I use the Bond Charge blue light blocking glasses while trying to stay an arm's width away from the screen when possible and refocusing my eyesight every 20 minutes. This helps minimize discomfort from blue light and glare from staring at screens all day. If you want to check out either of these products and the rest of the things that Bond Charge has on their website, you can go to bondcharge.com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save 20% off your order. That's dot com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save 20% off your order. Bond Charge ships worldwide in rapid time and has easy return and exchanges if you are not satisfied. All right, so let's jump into this topic question. So, the question was actually submitted by Brendan O'Hara, and the specific question was Can one become dependent on exogenous ketones taken two times per day or ketone ester to optimize a high fat diet approach to ultra running and training? So, before we get into the specifics of that, I want to just give an overview for those of you who are unfamiliar with exogenous ketones, or even maybe ketones in general. So first let's go over what they are specifically. There are two prominent ketones that are made by the liver, which are beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. You can produce these endogenously, which is just your body producing them specifically by following a strict ketogenic diet and an even less strict low carbohydrate diet you will produce some level of blood ketones and may find yourself in a state of ketosis as defined by what some will say 0.5 millimolars or higher of blood concentrate, uh, even when you're not following a strict ketogenic diet, depending on personal individual characteristics, lifestyle, and other things that can drive that that up. You take me, for example, I don't typically follow a strict ketogenic diet in its traditional framework of, say, like 50 grams or less of carbohydrate per day. But because of my lifestyle, I often find myself at or sometimes well above 0.5 millimoles of blood ketones. So exogenous ketones or ketone supplements come in two general formulations. These are ketone salts and ketone esters. Ketone esters are bound to an ester and are more efficient in raising blood ketone levels they also tend to be less palatable at times when compared to the salts. Ketone salts are bound to sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. You do need to be mindful with ketone salts. Carry, they carry a lot of sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium. So by taking this supplement, you could potentially create a scenario where it could be problematic if you begin reaching your limit of tolerance of those minerals. So, like any supplement, you want to be careful about how you're using it and what you're combining with uh, with it as well to make sure you're not, you know, doing yourself more harm than good. For higher doses, ketone esters are going to be more appropriate if you're looking for like a higher dose of beta beta hydroxybutyrate. However, if repeated, they can be problematic digestively and for some, the taste, like I mentioned before. So, just like with the salts, you want to be mindful that you're not like you know, doing things crazy, you're checking with your doctor, if you have any conditions, making sure you're not combining them with things that could be potentially problematic and stuff like that. So, uh, it would be good to really, you know, do your homework on it before just kind of throwing them at whatever you're doing lifestyle wise, whether that be for health or nutrition or performance or whatever your goals are intended with that. Um, they have been shown to increase ketone blood concentrations rapidly, the esters that is, uh, One study in lean athletes showed that after a 50 gram dose, blood markers of beta hydroxybutyrate rose to two millimoles after 10 minutes and six millimoles after 20 minutes. So that's a pretty significant spike. For those of you curious, for somebody who is following like a moderate carbohydrate diet and, you know, just, you know, doing basic life stuff, not any like real structure training, things like that they're going to be likely well under 0.5 millimoles of blood ketones. So you take that person, you put them on a very strict ketogenic diet. We're talking 50 grams or less. It might take them a few days before they come anywhere near even two millimoles of blood ketones. And everyone's going to be different. Some people might respond really quick. Some people might take a long time. Some people are going to have uh, issues with protein making a difference in terms of kind of how high their their, uh, blood ketone levels get when they're just trying to do it through dietary reach and things like that. So by taking this ester at a 50 gram dose, which is a pretty large dose, if you look at some of the more popular exogenous ketone brands out there, like HVMN, their dosages are, I think, closer to like around 10 grams per serving. So that is a pretty high dose. But, um, you know, obviously the the blood ketones skyrocketed after that. So these products have also shown promise in things like reduction in appetite, Uh, but they're not, to my knowledge, any long-term human weight loss that has been attributed to proven through this method it would stand a reason if someone's goal is weight loss and they're having a hard time with cravings or something like that if they had a product that reduces appetite that would likely be helpful in them maintaining a caloric deficit so um you know if that's someone's goal they could maybe play around with that and see see how that would uh possibly impact where they're at with that sort of stuff there is some studies on performance and there's some studies on recovery if we're looking at it through that lens and to date, those studies would suggest that what we could lean on maybe a little more concretely would be that there does seem to be a potential recovery benefit to ketones. So like ketones plus protein post-workout could potentially be a situation where you would have a better recovery outcome. The performance studies that I'm aware of to date are much less convincing. I think the even the best ones come out at neutral in terms of what they do. And the hard part with any of those studies, any study for that matter, that kind of comes out at neutral is like, you, what are the details share? So it's like, they're averaging neutral, but within that, you'll probably have people that are like just non-responders, people who are going to actually have a noticeable performance improvement and the people who have a performance reduction. And then it just averages out to that. So then there becomes almost an individual question is like, where do you fall within that, that spectrum of results? Uh, I think it's also really interesting given the palatability of the esters and then also the potential digestive issues you can get from like the high amounts of uh, of minerals that you're going to get in the salts to that. Potentially, some of the research may have been an issue of compromised performance due to just the digestibility of said project in terms of how your body responds to it from that side of things, which could easily impact the way you perform. If you're say taking an exogenous ketone on race day, and then getting gastrointestinal issues from it, you know, whatever benefits that could plausibly be, there may be easily erased or exceeded by some of that. And then that could show up too. So, uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done with that too. I also want to mention too, cause I've done some testing with the esters, which are in liquid form. The salts tend to be something you will mix in with uh, whatever product it is you're going to use with it. So the esters, the ones I had originally, some of the early ones were just awful tasting. So it was something where like when I was thinking about it's like, yeah, I can choke this down if I'm just sitting here in the kitchen and be fine. If I wash it down with a glass of water or something like that. But you know, the thought of doing it like seven hours into a race when the weather's hot and then maybe slightly dehydrated and just like, yeah, I could see that being a potential problem. I'll say that some of the updated versions of it, they have gone, come a long way in their palatability. So, uh, I personally expect that to probably get better as well. And then there's also the idea of like, you don't necessarily have to take it straight. Um, you could easily dilute it and say like 12 ounces of water or whatever sports product you happen to be using on the day and and maybe hardly even notice it in there when you have that kind of a uh, a concentration like diluted into the into whatever you're drinking with it so uh it'll all be interesting to see where the ester stuff goes from a performance standpoint as we get more studies out on that uh it is a topic I want to talk to some experts about too to get a little bit of an update on it too because some of my understanding of the research is getting dated at this point as more studies come out. Then one of the next big questions that I tend to think about when it comes to this sort of thing where it's like we have this situation where we can produce ketones endogenously by reducing our carbohydrate intake and we get a bigger effect by drastic reductions like a strict ketogenic diet, but we can also kind of get the same output from a blood ketone level or higher at times with this exogenous supplement. So questions start to pile up at that point where you start to think to yourself, well, is one better than the other? Do you get dependent on an exogenous ketone to the point where like your natural product production of ketones would be compromised. If you say, take a ton of it and then stop cold Turkey, which is kind of what the question that Brendan asked was trying to clarify. And then also just, is there a scenario here where you can have the best of both worlds where, okay, now I can get strict ketogenic diet level of blood ketones, but also bring in some carbohydrate. Is there kind of a way to maximize the benefits of both without having the kind of the compromising aspect of Say what you lose when you go on a moderate high carb diet in the form of fat oxidation or on the reverse, what you lose in terms of your ability to process and utilize exogenous carbohydrates and having access to that higher octane fuel source uh, if you're on a strict ketogenic diet. you know, this is, these are questions where I think a lot of the performance world is asking. And then there's also just like the other side of it, just the health nutrition and potentially weight loss benefits of things like this. So I was interested to see kind of what studies were available that either highlighted on the, you know, the differences between say exogenous and endogenous ketones, as well as like what they're going to do in terms of being a useful aid for people, if they're considering adding them to their, to their protocol. So one of the first things that I found interesting when I was combing through some of the research on examine was, uh, a meta-analysis that popped up that was about exogenous ketones and blood glucose reduction. So I've had a few episodes recently that were somewhat tied to blood glucose based on continuous glucose monitors. So this one kind of jumped to my top of my head, maybe because of the close proximity of that. But I found it interesting because one is a meta-analysis. So this means that there was likely uh, multiple studies that have been done and you're just going to have a higher level of potential kind of results that you can lean on at a population level when you have that sort of combination of, of studies there. So I wanted to see kind of like what it looked like with that, you know, a lot of people, are thinking of like, what are ways I can reduce blood glucose if they are at like a pre-diabetic, diabetic diabetic level, or even someone who just happens to be kind of trending that direction. So this meta-analysis found that an acute and prolonged supplementation with exogenous ketone reduced blood glucose in healthy participants and participants with metabolic disorder. Um, the background for this study was a ketogenic diet have been found to benefit individuals with metabolic disorders, such as type two diabetes, primarily by reducing fasting blood glucose. Recently, exogenous ketone supplements have been popular as a way to induce ketosis without carbohydrate restriction or prolonged periods of fasting. The acute ingestion of exogenous ketones lowers blood glucose in healthy individuals and those with type two diabetes. However, there had not been a comprehensive review on the glucose lowering effects of exogenous ketones. So this study or this meta-analysis examined the effect of acute and prolonged exogenous ketone supplementation on blood glucose. Studies using beta-hydroxybutyrate-containing supplements in the form of ketone esters or a ketone salt were considered within that meta-analysis. So a total of 43 studies were included in it. With a total of 586 adult participants, the participants in this tri- these trials included healthy individuals, individuals with overweight or obesity, and individuals who had diabetes or heart failure. The primary outcome was the magnitude of the decrease in blood glucose and the increase in blood beta hydroxybutyrate following exogenous ketones ingested. Uh, The results for this included acute ketone supplementation did reduce blood glucose by an average of 9.7 milligrams per deciliter or 0.54 millimoles per liter. So that's, as far as I can tell, that's a fairly large reduction. If we're looking at like almost 10 milligrams per deciliter, if you think about it, when you take say like a fasting blood glucose test, If you are at like a hundred milligrams per deciliter, that's where you start kind of having some red flags show up where you might want to get to take a look to see if you are like in the pre-diabetic range. So if someone were say at that point and this exogenous ketone could bring them down closer to 90, seems to be significant to me. Um, But let's keep going here and see what there's, what else there's included here. The blood glucose reduction was greater following supplementation with ketone esters. So the reduction, that average reduction of 9.7 milligrams per deciliter was actually larger when figured, when we broke apart esters versus salts, the esters reduced actually by 13.7 milligrams per deciliter or 0.76 millimoles per liter compared to the ketone salts, which were just 4.1 milligrams per deciliter or 0.23 millimoles per liter. Uh, so the blood ketones increased on average of 1.73 millimoles following the acute ketone supplementation. The increase in blood ketones was greater after supplementation with the ketone esters, which I would expect given what we talked about before, uh, than after the salts. So the esters produced a 2.57 millimole increase, whereas the salts produced a 0.5 millimole increase, uh, prolonged ket- prolonged ketone supplementation had no effect on fasting blood glucose, but decreased average daily blood glucose and HbA1c. So what that means is when subjects took a fasting blood glucose level, level, apparently they did not see any reduction there. So that remained the same. But their averages. So, like if you looked at just where their blood glucose was on average over the course of the day, that did reduce. And it's cool that they also had blood glucose and HBA1C. HBA1C, which is essentially just a reading that will show where your blood glucose averaged over like a three-month period of time. So that one can give you a better idea of kind of what the totality of your lifestyle and nutrition is doing to your blood glucose levels. So concluding that is, is interesting. So it seems like we had a reduction in. Average and HbA1c, despite not having a reduction in the fasting. Uh, some notes to consider with this uh, the above results are presented from studies that compared blood glucose before and after acute ketone ingestion instead of comparing the blood glucose response to a comparison like placebo supplement. So, what this is lacking is essentially a control group where, or not a control group, a group where they gave something that the participants could maybe think was an exogenous ketone, but really wasn't to see if there was a placebo effect, which we know can be very substantial at times. Uh, So I guess the question then becomes like, if you would say, give someone a fake exogenous ketone, would they have these similar reductions in blood glucose, or um, HbA1c? I guess maybe the counter to that would be since we did see a fairly wide variance between the esters and the salts, it does appear that there is something going on there that's non-placebo related, or we would likely have seen like a more similar reduction or lack thereof amongst the the salts and the esters would maybe be a, a follow-up counter to the lack of having that, uh, that, that comparison placebo supplement. But in, anyway, interesting stuff. So hopefully this is something that'll maybe get Further attention. It was a pretty recent meta-analysis. It actually was published on June 28th of 2022, so uh, half a year. It's only been half a year since this has been out. So, uh, I think we're going to continue to see this sort of stuff kind of come up with exogenous ketones as as things carry on. Another topic that I found when looking into this, I thought was maybe interesting, was a study that looked at the effects of a ketogenic diet with and without exogenous ketones on body composition. So there has been some debate and back and forth about just you know how the ketogenic diet actually impacts things like body composition or weight loss so you know you get a lot of rhetoric around like oh you know a ketogenic diet is actually going to do things like create a larger weight reduction despite not having reduction in calories and then you get another group who's going to argue no it doesn't it's you know calories a calorie kind of a mindset where as long as you have a reduction, you're going to have similar weight loss. So studies that kind of compare different dietary habits with strict ketogenic diets or low carbohydrate diets can maybe shed some light onto whether that's likely or not with this one. Um, it's also looking at exogenous ketones. So like, is there a difference between say someone who is on a strict ketogenic diet, uh, without exogenous ketones versus someone on a strict ketogenic, strict ketogenic diet with exogenous ketones in terms of where their body composition goes. And as you'll know, as I'm going to go through this, they also paired that with a low-fat diet. So we have a distinct variance in terms of like what is being consumed from a food standpoint as well, which can be kind of helpful to see because if no differences show up in that or improvements or regressions show up in one or the other, that might shed some light on to whether or not that's something you want to consider doing. So, the background with this is ketogenic diets may be effective for weight and fat loss compared to low fat diets, but an important unanswered question is how ketogenic diets affect lean mass loss. Some evidence points towards the use of exogenous ketone salts to preserve lean mass when one is on a hypocaloric state. So, what's that saying is you're going to be in a calorie deficit, they're making sure you're consuming less than you're burning is there some sort of lean mass reduction? Because when we talk about weight loss, uh, it's not just the reduction in weight that is important is what is coming off of you. For example, if someone loses 10 pounds, but five of that is lean and five of that is fat versus someone losing 10 pounds with eight of it being fat and two of it being lean, everyone's going to take that second spot. So if a diet produces that difference in composition with the same weight loss, that's very important. It's not just like, oh, they both lost 10 pounds. Therefore, Uh, they're the same when clearly the one was better at preserving the lean mass. So one of the, one of the questions being asked by this study is will supplementing ketone salts affect body composition in people who eat a reduced calorie ketogenic diet. Uh, So this can shed some light on maybe some application with ketone salts outside of, uh, um, you know, just relying on your own endogenous ketone production when it comes to Weight loss with a goal of preserving lean mass. So, this study was six weeks, randomized controlled trial, 25 overweight and obese participants, aged 35 years on average. They consumed a hypocaloric ketogenic diet of a 600 calorie deficit with less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day and 1.5 grams per kilogram per day of protein. So, that's another interesting point. A lot of these studies on weight loss when you see a difference from one diet to the next, the next question you should always ask yourself is, did they control for protein? Because when we look at the way your body, like the energy it requires for your body to break down and metabolize a carbohydrate versus a fat, we see very little difference. But when we look at protein, there is actually a meaningful difference between how much energy it takes for your body to actually break down that protein and utilize it. So one gram of protein versus or I shouldn't say gram because we're going to have a difference in calories and grams of fat and grams of carbohydrate. So if you took say a hundred calories of protein versus a hundred calories of carbohydrate versus a hundred calories of fat, we wouldn't see much of a difference between the carbs and the fat in terms of how your body, uh, increases energy output from consuming it. But with protein, we will. So if you have a study that doesn't control for protein and one of the arms has a much higher protein uh, number than the others, stands to reason that group is going to have a different result, not based on the the carbohydrates or fat necessarily, but based on the the protein. So it's good when they have these things control for protein here. And it looks on this study, they went with 1.5 grams per per kilogram per day of protein. Um, All right. So 12 of the participants took the ketone salts so they were ketogenic diet plus ketone salts. It was 11.8 grams twice per day. And then 13 of them received a placebo, which was just the ketogenic diet plus the placebo. So these, these participants between what was it? 25 of them total about 12 and 13, they actually all came in assuming they were getting, uh, the exogenous ketones, the ketone salts. So we can, we can, eliminate the placebo effect for this one, because they did not assume that they were getting something. They weren't a comparison group of 12 people was also assigned to a calorie and protein matched low fat diet. Okay. So this is great. So there is the counter to the actual dietary habit and, uh, also protein matched. So that's good. That's good. Uh, good setup as far as I can tell. The primary outcome was the composition of weight loss, including fat and lean mass, as well as nitrogen excretion and levels of 3-methylhistidine, which is a marker of skeletal muscle protein breakdown. The secondary outcome was the difference in body composition in the ketogenic diet groups compared to the low-fat diet group. Body composition was measured by DEXA scan and MRI. So we have very accurate in terms of what we have available to us in measuring body composition with the DEXA scan and MRI which is also good so results as expected the ketogenic diet induced nutritional ketosis so those of the, those people who reduced their diet to less than 50 grams of carbohydrate or less had greater than 1.0 millimoles of capillary beta hydroxybutyrate throughout the study with higher fasting concentra- concentrations in the ketogenic diet plus ketone salt group for the first two weeks, but with similar concentrations between the groups for the remainder of the trial. So this trial was six weeks. So that's interesting to note that in the first two weeks, we had an increased fasting uh, beta hydroxybutyrate levels in the blood of the ketogenic diet plus ketone salts versus the ketogenic diet alone but after 2 weeks it seems like the diet alone caught up so that just might mean that the ketone salts accelerated the process but given enough time the dietary patterns are going to kind of equate those to a point so the logical next consideration is then like do you have a situation where what i said before becomes an option of those who want to maintain those levels Uh, on just diet alone would need to continue to withstand from carbohydrates versus possibly the group that's on a ketogenic diet, plus the ketone salts could eventually introduce more carbohydrates and possibly um, still maintain some of those benefits without the the, as severe of a reduction. Um, Anyway body mass, body fat, lean mass, mid thigh muscle cross sectional area, and both visceral and subcutaneous fat decreased equally in both the ketogenic diet groups, as well as the low fat diet group. Okay, so that's interesting, because that basically shows that if you're looking at it purely through body mass, body fat, lean mass, mid thigh muscle cross sectional area, And visceral fat and subcutaneous fat decreased equally in all those groups. So there doesn't appear to be any form of body composition or weight loss benefits between a strict ketogenic diet, a strict ketogenic diet plus exogenous ketone salts, or a low fat diet when calories and protein are equated. Uh, Also noted, urine nitrogen excretion was higher in the ketogenic diet plus placebo group than the low fat diet group and trended higher, but non-significant in the ketogenic diet plus placebo group compared to the ketogenic diet plus ketone salt group. So basically what that means is, uh, the, the group that was on the ketogenic diet had higher nitrogen excretions in their urine. Which is an indication or marker of skeletal muscle protein breakdown. So that was higher in those ketogenic groups. Um, The interesting thing that I would probably need some clarification or the question I would have then is like, with that, there wasn't, uh, there was no reduction in lean mass, relatively speaking. So it wasn't like those ketogenic diet groups lost more muscle mass and had that scenario I described earlier where, yeah, they lost the same amount of weight, but one group lost more fat less muscle and the other group lost more muscle less fat to making it like less ideal even though the numbers on the scale were consistent so um that could just be that the body was was using it more efficiently in the sense that it didn't need it and was excreting it more i don't know um but either way it is worth noting that that was one of the results in it um Also added in the notes for the study, over 50% of total weight loss in the ketogenic diet groups was achieved in the first two weeks of the trial. Ketogenic diets can induce immediate body water loss as a result of glycogen depletion, and it's important to note that DEXA scan registers this water loss as lean mass loss. Ketogenic diets are also associated with sodium excretion, which is why it is important that people eating a ketogenic diet maintain an adequate sodium intake Interestingly, the ketogenic diet plus ketone salts group consumed over six grams of sodium a day compared to just under 2.4 grams a day in the ketogenic diet plus placebo group. Yet this did not affect the loss of free fatty mass as measured by DEXA. So, you know, that's also another conversation I think always comes up with these ketogenic diet studies is if we normalize electrolytes or like sodium intake between these diets, how does that impact things? Because, I mean, when you think of the word carbohydrate, the last part of the word is hydrate because carbohydrates bind themselves to water. So they do have a hydrating effect, uh, a water retention effect, uh, which can be very good from a performance standpoint. If you're looking to maintain hydration status, Uh, if you're out there working out in hot weather and you're on a ketogenic diet, you're likely going to need more electrolytes in order to counterbalance that loss that you're getting from the reduction in glycogen that you're going to have with more consistent, moderate to high carbohydrate consumption. Uh, So it is, it is interesting when they actually note that and look at that in these studies that they're, they're thinking about that when they're kind of doing this stuff. But like I said, like this study and any study, oftentimes you get some kind of cool, cool things answered, like a couple questions answered or get a glimpse into things, but then you oftentimes end up, finishing up with like, okay, I went in with two questions, we answered those, but now I got 10 more, (laughs) which for researchers, they're probably just like, um, you know, always, always looking to try to continue to answer questions after another, which I think is great in terms of kind of advancing the fields, but also uh, is an an endless, uh, endless scenario of trying to find funding and whatnot to try to get the next questions answered after you, you know, dive in with this sort of stuff. So that that was an interesting one when it came to um, body composition. It doesn't seem like if you're looking to add exogenous ketones to your diet or even take on a ketogenic diet specifically, it's not necessarily going to guarantee that you're going to improve your body composition uh, if you're able to equate calories and protein. Now, the counter to that that most people are going to say is at the individual level, different dietary approaches are going to be more or less sustainable. So. Some person might find a very strict ketogenic diet incredibly sustainable for them. They may eat their allotted amount of energy and feel like they don't crave extra food. They feel content. They feel like their energies are good and uh you know, they go about their day versus if they went on, say, a moderate carbohydrate diet, they feel like they're always battling the hunger, they're always um having a hard time sticking to their strategy and they're not being uh, very consistent. And you get people on the opposite end of the spectrum where if they try to do a strict ketogenic diet and staying below like 50 grams of carbohydrate a day just is not something they're able to do. They constantly end up m- missing that mark and then uh, kind of falling off the wagon, so to speak and then they don't reach their goals because they're not staying consistent. So you get, I think, a lot of just uh, kind of individual questions that can be asked then, which you know ultimately comes down to the individual probably trying these different approaches if they're curious enough in them and finding out for themselves whether it's something that is going to be a workable approach for them or better than the next thing that they've tried. And uh, if you want to see examples of that, go to Twitter, (laughs) you're going to get every example of every type of person on every type of diet, having the best success ever, or the worst success or the worst amount of failure you can imagine. So um, that, that is always kind of an interesting kind of follow-up question when we're looking at population averages and what the research shows there versus what you maybe would get um, at the individual level versus based on individual characteristics. Okay. So finally, after a bit of an overview and somewhat of a deep dive into a couple like interesting topics around exogenous ketones and kind of anything around kind of almost a ketogenic diet and it sometimes versus a low fat diet. uh, Back to Brendan's original question, which is, can one become dependent on exogenous ketones taken two times per day or ketone esters to optimize a high fat diet approach to alter running and training? So from what we know today, I think we can probably say that We don't have evidence that ketone salts or esters are going to improve ultra training or running in a way that would show up on the race results, so to speak, or show up in your workout results, at least at a population level. Um, Whether you can become dependent on them, I didn't find any studies. Um, I reached out to Brady about it, and he said he thought there was maybe one study out there that he didn't have on the top of his head that looked at this, but... uh, um, Didn't think that there was necessarily going to be a, you know, a big issue there where if you say like you were taking some exogenous ketones, then all of a sudden you stop using them all of a sudden your body's like unable to produce, you know, natural endogenous ketone levels. That seems unlikely, I would think like at worst, you'd maybe have like a a transition period, like a short transition period, if you were doing like a lot of it, and then went completely off of them would maybe be a question I'd be curious about that I don't believe has been answered in the research that I'm available. But like I said, at the beginning, this is a topic I want to further explore in 2023. And you can kind of look at this episode as maybe a bit of a primer to that in terms of kind of some of the interesting aspects of the research out there now, what maybe we're looking at And then for, to Brandon's point, like, what are some questions that we would like the researchers maybe to explore further? So as this, this uh, stuff starts to develop, we have uh, more reason or information to either take or not take these, these supplements or introduce them into our lifestyle. One quick final note on exogenous ketone usage and how that impacts endogenous production. I did end up getting more feedback from Brady after I got finished recording this episode, so I do want to include some of the points that he made that uh, maybe highlight a few more details around this. So people think that it can acutely decrease endogenous production. So what that means is if I were to take an exogenous ketone like an ester or salt, my endogenous production would likely decrease in the short term uh, because it inhibits lipolysis and decreases plasma-free fatty acid reliably in multiple experiments. However, long-term impact on production is not clear as far as we know. So that means, let's say I did the exogenous ketones, either esters or salts, and then stopped using them. That acute reduction in endogenous production Uh, presumably would pick right back up. Um, However, it may even differ for fatty acid ester, which still relies on some endogenous production process versus a salt or more direct beta hydroxybutyrate delivery ester. Uh, There's only one paper that might talk about this a little bit um, by Dear Love et al. So if you're interested, that would be a study to maybe dig into a little bit more. So that's my final piece to that question as far as we know now. But hopefully, like I said, we can continue to pursue some answers around the questions in terms of the usage of exogenous ketones. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you have any questions or topics that you'd like me to address on this podcast, feel free to reach out. You can shoot me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on one of my social media platforms, most active on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram's at Zach Bitter, Twitter's at ZBitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy, and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athletes Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiova- cardiovascular fitness Or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at ZachBitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with Zach Bitter.